This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Kara Harris is the blogger and historian behind the Old Line Plate, a fantastic Maryland-based food history website, a site I personally love and something I knew we had to bring to PreserveCast. Let's sink our teeth into this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're super excited to be talking with Kara Harris, who is the blogger and historian behind one of my favorite websites, Old Line Plate, um, which if you're not familiar with some of the, the ways in which we refer to the state of Maryland, the Old Line State is uh, one of our nicknames and Old Line Plate, a play on that and a look at um, sort of the gastro history of Maryland. Um, and we're excited to be talking with Kara about this. Um, she has, has uh, obviously, um, for people who are familiar with her, really kind of edged out a niche when it comes to um, this unique aspect of Maryland and, and really mid-Atlantic history. So, Kara, it's so much fun to have you here. I'm really excited to, to chat with you. Um, for people who aren't familiar with you, let's start there. Like, where'd you grow up, um, and what took you on this path to your interest in like food history, Maryland history? Where did where did this all start, and where's your story begin? Sure. Um, thank you for having me. By the way, um, my interest, um, like probably a lot of students, I didn't know I was interested in history really until I discovered, um, you know, what you call pop culture history or just more history of everyday living when I was a young adult. Um, and sometime in the mid uh, 2000s, I started just making recipes from these cookbooks that I borrowed from my uh, mother, the Southern Heritage Cookbook Library. And they're full of reprinted ephemera, um, all kinds of you know old recipes from different states and cultures within the South. Um, I grew up in Beltsville in PG County, and I didn't really think of Maryland as the South. I was kind of surprised to see these Maryland recipes in there, but some of them were really odd sounding to me. There was like Maryland baked liver and, of course, Maryland white potato pie. So I started making the recipes, and um, eventually I found the Maryland's Way Him and Harwood House cookbook, and that opened a whole other world of Maryland recipes. So I started making them and reading about the places that they were connected to and the people. And before you know it, I ended up with, uh, 200 plus cookbooks. <laughs> it's gotta be, do you think it's, is it the largest single collection? Do you own the largest single collection of Maryland cookbooks? Is that possible? Um, I have no way to know that. Um, the Pratt library certainly has a pretty good collection. Um, and they, I know it's not necessarily cookbooks specifically, but they also got the um, Frederick Philip Steef kind of archives because he was a bit of a culinary historian in his own right, or at least a, um, you know, he was collecting Maryland folklore and stories. Um, so I'm not sure. There's also kind of the question of what makes something a Maryland cookbook. That's sort of a arbitrary distinction. I collect books that were published in Maryland. I have quite a few that have Maryland recipe written real big on the cover, but 
sometimes you just find advertising cookbooks from, you know, corporations that actually had a national presence. And I wonder, well, is this really a Maryland cookbook just because McCormick put it out? Um, so, you know, I could, I could call it uh, a Maryland cookbook collection, but that's really a loose, um, you know, that's a, a definition of, for dispute, I guess. So you've got over 200 of them, and I know you've you've begun this sort of massive database of it as well, and then trying to map out um, them by location. Do you want to talk a little bit about that aspect of the work? Um, yeah, that was definitely inspired um, almost singularly by the the Hammond Harwood House cookbook, which, uh, as I mentioned, it was one of the original ones I started working from, and it kind of influenced a lot of the architecture of my database. Um, I'm actually going to pull it off of my shelf right next to me. If you just open the pages, you know, you'll have recipes where it says simlings from Mrs. Charles W. Williams um, from a, a state, I guess, known as Welcome Here, Glendon. So a lot of these recipes have a location attached to them, and I just wanted to see where these locations were, and that led me to the Maryland Historical Trust database with all these documents and photos for a lot of these things. So I just kind of wanted a place to tie them all together and visualize it. And how many ended up on the database itself? Um, you mean how many recipes are in the database? Yeah, or and, and I guess... the Maryland and, way? Well, and connected to places then. Um, I can actually... It's fun doing interviews this way because I can just kind of pull it up. Um, it looks like I have out of the like 45,000 recipes in my database, 16, about 1600 are connected to a specific place. Um, so that would be restaurants. Some of them just list a city or a county. I only tie them specifically to a place if it's an association within the recipe, if that makes sense. Some recipes are associated with people, so that would expand the map because people are associated with places also, not to get too much in a database architecture, but it gets kind of complicated. So I mostly just attach the recipe to the place if the source does. Otherwise, I attach it to the person and then by extension, you can map it to a place as well, which is what I did with the Lovely Lane cookbook and the Maryland recipe contest that I recently mapped. So I think it's so interesting. I mean, one of the, I mean, I, I'm I'm fascinated by your work and have been following you for years, and we've done some things together with Preservation Maryland just because um, what I think you do is so important. Um, but I think it's really fascinating. You know, we have a national, even an international audience, and this idea of connecting the cultural history of food to specific place um, is not done all that often. I mean, I think that, like, I mean, not to go too far, but, like, this is almost, like, kind of, like, groundbreaking stuff, and I think it's so important when it comes to sort of the intangible history of place and I, I, I would implore preservationists to take a look at what you're doing and think about how it could be replicated in other places um, because this really does connect um, that, you know, intangible cultural history to place in a way that often isn't done and it appeals so well because it's food, right? Who, uh, who, who doesn't um, love learning about food and, the you know, both the good stuff and then, like, the wacky stuff? Um, that, that connects you. I mean, I'm curious, um, 
what, what, like, obviously you started by cooking and then it kind of became this, you know, collection thing. And then you've done research and connected it to place and all that kind of stuff. But what fascinates you most? Like, are there, are there common threads that you're looking for in this? Are there lessons for today? Like what kind of keeps you going and keeps the work moving forward? What is sort of your driving force and your, I guess, your muse when it comes to this work now? Um, I think my driving force is a little bit of obsessiveness, I guess, but you do have an interesting point when I think about a lot of the historical sites I've visited. Sometimes a lot of them have kitchens where they'll do demonstrations. Um, and often I do hope it's a resource that more people avail themselves of. I hope to put more and more of it available online, but often you have these, um, kitchen reenactors and often they'll be working from Mary Randolph's cookbook or another regional cookbook when a lot of people might not realize that they're actually at a site where you can trace specific recipes to that site. So for me as a visitor, I think I might find it a little more compelling, you know, just as a tourist, just to see a recipe made um, and to find out that it actually has a history in that specific place. There's just something really fascinating and intriguing about that, I think. Um, so that does, that ties into the mapping. Um, just, it, it's really a visualization of something being made in a kitchen. Um, I actually found a recipe that was from the house that I live in, um, where I moved here um, a little over a year ago. So it was interesting just to kind of imagine what the kitchen in a daylight row home was like when it was built and what this woman was making in the same kitchen where I'm standing. Um, I've yet to try her recipes, but I think about that a lot. Um, I might've strayed from your question a little bit. There's so many aspects of it. I get on tangents that I barely even write about. I get down rabbit holes of research that aren't necessarily related to food, just fun, fun subjects. So it kind of has, it's just an endless gateway to different stories. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I'm curious, and, and it's just, I love, and I love that about, um, that you found one in your own home. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. What was the, what was the recipe? Was it a, a collection of them or was there a specific recipe? I'm curious why you haven't made it yet. <laughs> um, I've been, I haven't made many, I have a kind of a backlog of actually some really neat stories to post about, um, recipes that I've made over the past year. The writing on my website has been fallen quite behind. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of research. And I always preferred to work in the Pratt library. So when things closed down for the pandemic, I haven't gotten back into my habit. Um, but the woman who lived here when this house was first built contributed some recipes to the Lovely Lane cookbook. One of them's for cinnamon cake, uh, one for peach fritters. So obviously I should probably make that like this weekend. Um, peaches <laughs> are quickly, quickly coming and going. Um, that sounds like a good way to use up some extra peaches. It just takes a lot of, especially if you're going to photograph things, it's a big concerted effort to clean up the space, make sure there's not a spot on the wall or the cutting board or anything, lay everything out, photograph it, um, make all the steps. It can really be kind of disruptive to the normal, normal cooking and eating process, if that makes sense. So I just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it makes total sense, but it, it's just, it's very, very cool to be that specific to place and to be able to find something like that. Um, maybe we'll take a quick break here. 
come back and then talk about maybe some some favorite recipes or, or things that you would encourage people to try their hand at if they want to dabble with uh, old line cooking and um, find out what's coming up next for you. And we'll do that right here on Preserve Cast. Hey, it's Nick here, and I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Kara Harris, who is both the blogger and historian behind Old Line Plate. We've been talking about what got Kara interested in this and the work that she's done and connecting recipe and food to place, which is super interesting. We'll have a link to all of that in our show notes that you can take a look, as well as um, her Twitter and uh, over to Old Line Plate. Uh, the site and the blog where she maintains all of this, and you can read more about uh, things that she has made and and things she'll make in the future. Um, so I'm curious, Kara. I mean, we're we're talking to you about um, food in Maryland, and we've kind of you've you've mentioned a couple, um, but do you have some like first off maybe like favorite recipes, and then maybe we'll talk about something if if there's a newbie out there who wants to try a classic Maryland dish, what you'd recommend? But any favorites or like like funny ones or, or things that come to mind that you just love to talk about? So the funny ones to me are really the kind of stuff that becomes almost clickbait. People send me a lot of those type of recipes as well. The things with gelatin kind of weird treatments of hot dogs or fish sticks uh, that was happening in the forties, fifties, uh, really the eighties. A lot of people don't realize that these aspects that everybody likes to place really far behind in history and think it's kind of a funny era that's passed would probably be surprised to see those recipes crept into many cookbooks well into the nineties even. Um, so those are always fun. Just thinking about how adventurous cooks have always been with new ingredients and new techniques. Um, so I like trying anything like that. I like anything that has a really deep sense of history. I, always talk about stuffed ham from St. Mary's County. Um, I should probably not go into that because I could talk for an hour about stuffed ham. Um, that's a favorite of mine. I do not recommend it for a novice home cook. That's why for sure. is that? Why don't you recommend um, it? So stuffed ham is just for something to make. I do recommend people go travel around St. Mary's County and try it out um, and read about its really interesting history. Um, but it is very difficult to make, very time consuming. You have to get a specialty cured ham. It has to be a corned ham, can't be smoked or um, any other type of preservation method. So you have to do this and then you prepare all these greens and stuff it into slits in the ham, boil it in a pillowcase or an old t-shirt. It requires a huge pot, boils for hours and hours and then takes several more hours to cool down so that it can be sliced. It just is a really uh, laborious process. I have, of course, as a, as a good Marylander, have eaten, um, you know, stuffed uh, Southern Maryland ham, but I don't think I realized the extent to which people had to go to make that. That's something else. I like the part about the old t-shirt too. That's Yeah, there's a that's... reason it's not really readily available uh, that we're not seeing it 
in its true form on restaurant menus all around, uh, you know, all around the state or even the country. You know, sometimes these regional foods become kind of viral and get popular. Uh, stuffed ham is really something that can't be recreated on that kind of scale, which makes it especially interesting and unique. Um, but for favorite foods, I think about that one a lot. And I think more, more than any specific food, I've picked up a lot of little techniques from historic cooking. Old recipes sometimes use ingredients like mushroom powder or anchovies to add umami, which of course is similar to using fish sauce today. So things like that, I've just gotten more of an appreciation of or really the appreciation of a good stew cooked in a solid pot for a really long time. Um, you know, we throw things in the crock pot and it's not quite the same. Um, so there's a lot of, it's hard to even quantify the influence that this has had on my home cooking. I probably don't even think about it anymore because it's second nature. But when you study the way that people cooked, especially if they were cooking over heat that they had to personally control without a knob um, and ingredients that could vary wildly, you really start to pick up a different um, a different instinct for cooking. So if someone wants to pick something up, and I think a lot of people, particularly if they're not, I mean, even if they're, they are from Maryland, but if they're around the country, I guess, you know, the thing that comes to people's mind is Maryland crabs. Um, that wasn't always the case though, right? Like I feel like from reading your stuff, it, I seem to remember that like Maryland fried chicken is really almost what Maryland was known for historically, but like, and am, am I right about that? Is that sort of the case? Maryland fried chicken was huge. Terrapin was huge, especially among the elite. Um, and oyster, of course, was just king of, um, you know, the food and kind of food economy all, all around the region. Um, so those were really huge. Crab was around, but yeah, it was served a lot differently, mostly in deviled crabs. Crab cakes existed, but they were more, I think, of a street food. Um, or maybe something that was cooked at home, which doesn't always show up in cookbooks, actually. So we, we love our crab now, but it's also become kind of a luxury item. So I don't cook as much with crab just for that reason. Um, yeah, particularly, stew, particularly now, it's per pretty expensive this season. <laughs> yeah, not too much crab recipes on my blog this year. Um, a recipe for people to try would always just be oyster stew. It's so simple. It used to be pretty much required as a Christmas dish. Um, there's a lot of slight variations in how you can make it, but for that same reason, you can really choose how you want it to be, you know, whether you want it to be really rich or just made with a little bit of milk or whether you include the oyster liquor in. And I think even for someone who's not an oyster lover, it's still really comforting food in December. So oyster stew is a tradition that I would like to see brought back. A lot of people don't like to eat food that's that simple anymore, especially if you're out maybe buying a meal in a restaurant. We want something that's more of a production. So oyster stew is a good one to make at home. And uh, you mentioned up front white potato pie. Talk to us about the the white potato. I have screwed up white potato pie once, and I've never told oh, you really? the story. Yeah, I I it was I it's I don't even want to want to admit what I did, but I think I switched sugar for salt. But anyway, other okay. than that, <laughs> that's it's a that's not you shouldn't do that. But um, but talk to us about white potato pie. White potato pie, people are really fascinated by it. I'm a big defender when people 
kind of um, recoil at the thought because I just say, well, think about rice pudding or, you know, bread pudding, something that's not necessarily having to be served as sweet, but it is. Uh, so you're just taking ingredients that are on hand and making a dessert of it. Um, white potato pie for me is interesting because it's a mystery how it came to be so associated with Maryland specifically. Um, lately, I've been almost wondering if it's because of a few specific people. One of the interesting things I found from creating the database that has this human and genealogical component is that some of the same people would submit recipes to multiple cookbooks. Um, I have people who have recipes in four and five cookbooks, and there's a family in Cecil County. I know a lot of people call white potato pie Eastern Shore, but that was kind of a thing, a prestige for anything from Maryland. So it just picked up the Eastern Shore kind of association, I think, for that reason. But um, so there's a few women in Cecil County who would win local cooking contests at the county fair and things with white potato custard and white potato pie. And the more recipes I enter, the more I start to wonder if they were really influencers. Basically, they're really spreading the word of this white potato pie and building its name in Maryland. But it's basically just potatoes sweetened with nutmeg or lemon. So it's like a custard enriched with some, um, you know, something starchy. And it's a nice homemade sweet to put together. Um, it was it's in the Maryland's Way cookbook. It mentions that it was served at a church in um, Davidsonville, I believe, for as part of a Thanksgiving meal. And I think that really carried on the tradition as well. And does it how similar in flavor for people who are familiar with like I think most Americans are familiar with sweet potato pie, or at least have heard of it. Is it similar to that or is it a pretty different um, flavor? It really can be similar. It depends on the sweet potato. But I actually tried to play a joke on my uh, friends once because I made the white potato pie all the time and a friend requested it. So I bought white sweet potatoes and I made a pie with the white sweet potatoes and at first passed it off as a white potato pie. And we actually couldn't tell that much of a difference. Um, it is pretty similar. There's a difference in texture because sweet potatoes just have a lot more of like kind of a velvety texture. But the seasonings are really similar, especially when you're just putting tons and tons of sugar into something. It kind of, you know, all starts to take on the same sugar and lemon and nutmeg. They do all kind of take on the same flavor. So it really depends. But I think the visual, it was interesting to see how the visual of an orange sweet potato affects our perception of a pie. I should really do a blind taste test sometime. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to participate if that's uh, if you're looking for taste testers. So, um, I mean, this is good stuff. I mean, uh, these these are cool things, and people can learn more. You can go to oldlineplate.com, and you can read about a lot of these different things and all of Kara's recipes and things that she's chronicled. You can find links, and we'll have these in the show notes as well. But you can find links to um, the um, different recipes that she's looked at and the. Um, uh, the, the database itself. So there's lots of good stuff there. I'm curious, you know, you said you've got a backlog. What, what are you working on? Like what's next? I mean, is it just continuing to find more? Is it expanse expanding? Is it, is it, will it always remain Maryland? What's the, what's the plan? Where are you headed? It kind of has to remain Maryland just because I have to draw the line somewhere. Um, as I 
mentioned before, what is a Maryland cookbook is kind of a um, nebulous question and kind of what is a Maryland recipe even more so. But I kind of have to make these arbitrary boundaries just because there's so many recipes in the world. Um, I originally didn't think I could do this for so long, but I am sitting next to my cookbook library and I have all these books that just have dozens of little sticky flags in them marking things that I want to try to make at some point. Uh, as for my backlog, I've just, it's always nice. I don't always seek out stories. I try to just gravitate towards a recipe organically based on what I have or what sounds good. And I came across this woman who wrote a lot of articles in the early 1900s for farm journals. Um, and then she got into aviation. So it just is kind of a, it, she seems like an interesting character that I can't wait to string together her story. But sometimes you have these people who did so many interesting things in their life and without really having anyone to interview about them or anyone to fill in the details, it can be sometimes a little hard to put this into a cohesive narrative. Um, that happened recently with, well, not that recently. It happened back in January when I wrote about the chicken contest and I found this woman who won the contest, but she was quoted in local papers about the moon landing and things like that. So she clearly had an interesting life, but how do you jump from one anecdote to another in a way that's entertaining and tie it into the food can be a bit of a challenge. Well, I think the good news is that somehow you 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 strike the entertaining piece because um, uh, I think you you've gotten a big following, and I know that the Baltimore Sun and others have have covered you, um, and so um, you're you're obviously hitting on the right thing. People are interested. I'm curious before we um, you know conclude here today, um, if someone was listening to this and they live in Wyoming or they live in you know, Nevada or something like that. And they're thinking about doing something like this for themselves, but they've never even started and they're, they're interested in this. What's like the, what's the, what's the gateway to this? How, what would you recommend to them if they want to start exploring their region's sort of cuisine and, and cookbooks? Well, I started by just looking online for cookbooks with Maryland in the name. I found that not every state really has that in the amount that we do. I have some heritage also in West Virginia. And uh, originally I was almost equally interested in finding West Virginia specific recipes. And at the time I could find hardly any, you can find a lot more now. There's a lot more people writing about their regional, almost micro regional history. Um, so finding books, uh, newspapers are a really great source because newspapers often would profile local uh women and their stories along with a recipe. I've done a few of those and that way you have really an interesting insight to somebody's life right off the bat. Church cookbooks, of course, are also a really great resource. That's where you find people's names and can start going on uh, ancestry and really looking into these people's lives and their social networks almost and tying that in with the recipes. Interesting. I mean, I think that there's 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 definitely something here, and I think again, connecting the intangible and this cultural heritage to place, um, and doing it in a way that people can can sink their teeth into it literally, I think is 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 really powerful. Um, so um, we always ask people. I didn't I didn't prep you for this one, but we always ask people if they have a favorite historic place or site. 
And I'm curious if you do, Kara. Yeah, for so many years, I was obsessed with, um, it, as far as Baltimore goes, I was so obsessed with the Mayfair building um, and reading about the history of that. Before I got into the recipes, I used to spend a lot of time in the Maryland room in Baltimore. So I was fascinated by the block. Um, I feel like I have so many to list. Um, for sight, I'm not sure. The thing about these kind of places, especially if you live in a city and you love Baltimore as much as I do, they all kind of weave together to create an overarching sense of history, kind of like a community cookbook that's full of different people's recipes that all went to the same church. So even when I see buildings and neighborhoods in Baltimore that are decaying, and I always look up the addresses of where people lived who contributed these recipes, you know, it's always sad to see any kind of neighborhood where there's just, you know, things are in, the buildings are in decline and just imagine the way that it used to be maybe when people wrote these recipes. So as far as a favorite, I'm kind of a sentimental, I'm, you know, sentimental about everything. So it's hard to really choose. Well, I like the Mayfair though. I think the people, for people who aren't familiar with that, you want to just tell them what it is? Yeah, that was such a source of fascination. I used to live in Mount Vernon. Um, I believe it was a gymnasium at one point. Do you know? Um, yeah. It had that big, it had that big Billy Holiday painting on the marquee that was done by John Ellsbury, I believe. Um, and it's currently just the facade is standing, but it later became a movie house uh, yeah. or theater. It's a, it's a cool building and it's, yeah, it's, um, yeah. we have some, we have some info on our website about it and then there's hopefully some redevelopment plans, but yeah. It's, that uh, corridor of the city is just fantastic. As soon as I moved to Baltimore and would drive through there, you could just feel the life uh you know, from the buildings kind of, uh, I don't know how to say this, not sound corny, the buildings kind of vibing off of each other almost. You can really get a sense of the the life down there um, when it was a bustling commercial corridor. It's got some fantastic architecture down there. Perfect. I love it. And I also love that for the first time in Preserve Cast, we've said something was vibing. I think that's great. Oh, no, I, I broke the <laughs> seal on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, those Kara, kind of things just make their way into your vocabulary, and you can't. I know, you know I know. can't think of whatever you used to say that meant the same thing. Synchronicity, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, this has been awesome. Um, I'm so glad that you were able to join us. Uh, we had uh, Christina Tasek on before with the Baltimore Sun and talked about dining and the overlap between food and heritage and history. And uh, we knew you would be a great complement to that conversation. So glad we were able to have you with us and. We will make sure that we have links to all of your great stuff in the show notes um, and uh, hope to talk with you again soon. Maybe we can do like a, a live stream or something and, and uh, make something together. But this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Kara. All right. Thank you. Have a good rest of your afternoon. I look forward to hearing it and to listening to uh, Christina's interview. Thank you. Sounds like that'll be good. Take care. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.